0: This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Hams Beer from the land of sky blue waters, now offering a new limited edition retro can. Limit one per customer. Hams, the beer refreshing a the smell of death is on the Hello, my name is Chris.
1: My name is Kelsey
0: And this is Pod Cemetery where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Father's Day on Pod Cemetery. Don't freak out. This is the Monday before Father's Day.
1: <laughs>
0: with our classic movie, 1982's Creep Show. Yes, the very first segment is all about Father's Day. Yes. And our modern movie, just barely making that cut, 2001's Frailty.
1: Well, it's about a father's. Oh, relationship. no, it's
0: totally about a father and his sons. Yes, absolutely. I'm just saying it's barely making the cut. Time-wise, it's mm-hmm. 19 years old.
1: Oh, yes. It
0: almost doesn't count as our modern film. But, but before it's not we get
1: quite an antique.
0: Not quite an antique. <laughs> from our... Okay, for those of you that don't know, every single episode we do an old movie and a new movie. And we follow the Christine definition of antique. <laughs> do you realize she's 20 years old? I mean, that makes her officially an antique In Christine, Arnie says that Christine is 20 years old, which officially makes it an antique.
1: Even though it's not quite correct. (laughs) We follow it.
0: But that is the definition that we follow here on the show. So frailty is almost an antique itself by that definition, but just within that mark. So we'll count it. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show?
1: Horror trivia.
0: Give me what you got.
1: In what movie could you find three individuals out in the woods with a video camera searching for a witch?
0: Seriously? Mm-hmm. The Blair Witch Project. Wrong. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was just like, yo, I mean, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Yeah. Our, our first movie, creep show is... Written by Stephen King and directed by George Romero. This was, until recently, the only feature film directed by George Romero that he didn't write himself. However, he did adapt another Stephen King story, which he wrote the script to. What movie is that?
1: Have I seen it?
0: You have. We've covered it on the show. This is going to be tough because I don't think you think of this as a George Romero movie.
1: I probably don't.
0: But think about the Stephen King movies we've covered.
1: But Romero does zombie movies.
0: He does a lot of zombie movies, but that's not all he does. Okay, this might-
1: He didn't do The Mist because The Mist was done by the dude who did The Shining remake. Right? That's the same director?
0: No. That was, um, <laughs> no, yeah, it, it was, and it was, it was written by the guy that did Shawshank Redemption. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> this may or may not be a help to you. Okay. Ed Harris is in this movie. Ed Harris was in Needful Things, and he played Sheriff Pangborn. Sheriff Pangborn also appeared in this other movie. Not played by Ed Harris, but the character.
1: Romero didn't do The Stand, did he? Not The Stand. No. In fact, didn't he want him to do The Stand, and he couldn't?
0: Something like that. I mean, they, they've been friends for a long time. Of course, George Romero passed away a couple years ago, like three years ago. We've
1: covered the movie.
0: We have covered the movie. It's
1: done by Romero.
0: Can you name all the Stephen King it's movies we've
1: done? by Stephen King. If
0: I was to ask you to name all the Stephen King movies that we've done on this show, you probably wouldn't think of this movie. Is it The Dark Half? It is The Dark Half. <laughs> okay. I
1: don't remember Ed Harris being in that. He's not.
0: The character of Sheriff Pengborn is in it. Ed oh. Harris played that role in Needful Things.
1: Oh.
0: That brings us into our first movie, our classic film, 1982's Creepshow, written by Stephen King and directed by George A. Romero, starring Hal Holbrook, Leslie Nielsen, Adrian Barbeau, E.G. Marshall, Ed Harris, Tom motherfucking Atkins, <laughs> and Stephen King himself. We have seen Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins together... <laughs> on the cast list for another movie we've covered on this show, Kelsey. Do you remember what that was?
1: Tom Atkins and who?
0: And Adrian Barbeau. She's the really brash wife in the crate. She's John Carpenter's ex-wife.
1: In real life?
0: In real life.
1: <laughs> God, is everyone connected to everyone?
0: Yes. She was married to John Carpenter when they made this other movie that Tom Atkins is, is in.
1: Is it Halloween 3?
0: No. (laughs) Directed by John Carpenter. This is like a little bonus trivia moment here.
1: Right. Carpenter. Yes. Halloween 3. Tom Atkins.
0: No. There's another Carpenter movie with Tom 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 Atkins in it. And here's a little hint. The other two movies that they're in together are Escape from New York and Two Evil Eyes. In all four of these films, they never once share a scene together.
1: I have no idea. Night the, of the Creeps?
0: The Fog.
1: I forget that Tom Atkins is in it. Yeah.
0: Adrienne Barbeau hosts the radio program from The Lighthouse.
1: That's the same actress? Yes. Wow. Yes. And. Because she's a classy lady in that movie. Uh,
0: and Tom Adkins is driving that truck and picks up the hitchhiking lady. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah. <laughs> she, he
1: ends up sleeping with Jamie Lee Curtis yes. 20 years his, his.
0: Junior. Junior. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good lord. Everyone is connected to everyone. What a tiny world.
0: Yeah. And to fuel that, John Carpenter also made Christine, which we mentioned earlier, which is another Stephen King story. (laughs) Hal Holbrook was also in The Fog, by the way. So I'm having trouble remembering The Fog. We're going to need to see it again. Sure. I'd be more than willing to see The Fog again. Hal Holbrook was Father Malone in The Fog. He was the priest. So... Yeah, a lot of connections here (laughs) to a lot of other things. Like I said, until recently, this was the first film directed by George Romero, but not written by him. Well, I guess technically it was the first film released. There was a film from the 70s that he made, but the production company that paid for it were like, we're not releasing this, called Amusement Park, which was just shown for the first time, I think, last year. It was found, an original cut of it was found in 2018, and it was just shown for the first time last year.
1: We need to see that.
0: I don't think we do. Amusement Park is about an old man who takes a trip to an amusement park and gets harassed by people. It's about ageism. Oh. (laughs) Okay. Yep. (laughs) So all of that said, (sighs) what is Creepshow about?
1: It's an anthology film. Uh Uh-huh. Well, just creepy stories. They, they aren't really connected aside from the fact that they are in a comic book.
0: Yeah, The Framing Device is a horror comic book, which was really big in the early 1900s, like the 40s and 50s, like the first half of the 1900s. And like EC Comics was big, Tales from the Crypt. I got a bunch of comics as a kid from my uncle Comics that he had when he was a kid. So these would be from the 50s um, and 60s. Like, uh, I have like a bunch of his original Mad Magazines. And there were also some horror comics in there that were from like this style. And I read those a bunch when I was a kid, like, wore them out. They were already worn out because he wore them out, but I wore them out even more. (laughs) They're always stories that have like a macabre twist, something that. Sometimes there's a moral, but sometimes there isn't. It's just like, hey, isn't that fucked up? Mm-hmm. Then there was Seduction of the Innocent that came out. Congress had a bunch of hearings on it, basically saying that comic books are bastions of horrible things that we show our children, and it's an, it's a bad influence on them. And then the Comics Code Authority came from it. But like a huge chunk of comic books at the time were these sort of horror comic books. And so this is like a movie version of that it is $4 to rent and $13 to buy on all the major digital stores. Should people watch Creepshow, Kelsey?
1: I would say no.
0: Kelsey has never liked Creepshow. <laughs> I I enjoy it.
1: I uh, Look, I have nothing against anthology films. I have nothing against just creepy stories. I don't know why. This one just doesn't appeal to me. I think it's just a little, I don't know. It's hard to explain why I don't like it. Is it because it's silly? Maybe. Maybe it's just too silly for me.
0: I mean, because that's how those comics were.
1: I didn't hate it nearly as much as I did the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, I loathed it.
0: Which is probably has something to do with the fact that it's not entertaining enough for you to sit through an entire segment about nothing but cockroaches. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I didn't hate it as much as I, I did the first time. So
0: I think most people listening have probably seen it. <laughs> um, if the idea of a horror anthology based around 70-year-old horror comic books sounds interesting to you, then you should see it. Because it is very much that. It's almost like, hey, what if this was a movie instead of a comic book? Like It even has the designs in the background when people are scared and the bright colors and all that. It's just literally trying to recreate a comic book. Yes. Um, so if that sounds interesting to you, then you should definitely see it. I would recommend you see it. Kelsey would recommend, maybe not. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1982's Creepshow. Show. <laughs>
1: Now, for the first time, the Masters of Horror, Stephen King, author
0: of Carrie, Cujo, and The Shining, and George A. Romero, creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, have teamed up to make a movie that will give you the creeps. Creepy show. The most fun you'll ever have. Being scared. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. All right, Kelsey, let's go through this. We start with the prologue. How does that begin?
1: Tom Atkins. Tom motherfucking
0: Atkins.
1: Sadly is a dick in this movie. Yeah. And he's yelling at his son for reading horror comics. Yes. He thinks it's gross, it's shit, it's it's going straight into the garbage. And the kid's like, what about your sex books?
0: Yeah, his porn.
1: And then he gets mad because, what were you doing in my my stuff? And he's like, you told me to get your cufflinks, and I saw them. Uh But, of course, he ignores that and throws it away. And the wife is like, I don't know that you should have done that. And he just keeps interrupting her, and he's like, that's what fathers are for. And I took care of it. And the son says, as he's sitting on his bed in anger... I hope you rot in hell. You rot in hell. And who is the son?
0: Joe Hill, who is Stephen King's son, who is actually an author in his own right. They've worked on other things uh, together.
1: Yes. and Tom Atkins
0: slaps him.
1: (laughs) That's right. Yes, he full on slaps his son, which makes his wife upset, which is why his son is so mad.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons, yes.
1: And his son looks out the window and sees a very silly looking skeleton. And yes, I know it's on purpose. It's just silly. Yeah. (laughs) And he smiles at him and then he becomes animated.
0: Yes, the the skeleton does. And we get a little animated intro and we see the comic book kind of shuffle open pages sitting in the trash can outside. And it takes us to our first segment, which is called Father's Day. If you pause it, you can get the intros where, you know, the, generally speaking, these comics all had like some kind of narrator. Like in Tales from the Crypt, the narrator was the Crypt Keeper. He wasn't a skeleton like he was not the TV show Tales from the oh, Crypt. Oh, really? No, he was he was literally a Crypt Keeper. He was a man with like stringy white hair and stuff. And yeah, so they turned him into a skeleton version of the him that (laughs) and you know he's cackling and laughing and telling bad jokes and puns and well dear reader you're in for a fright you know like that kind of thing yes our first story father's day how does that one play out
1: it's told mostly in flashback which is an odd choice Sure. For such a small little thing. Like, there's well, so much exposition that they have to give you. Yes. For just this tiny little thing that's going to happen. Uh huh. So, we get this long story. Basically, there's two sisters who had a horrible father. I guess the father latched on to one of the sisters, but not the other one, because the other one left and got married. And then, don't know what happened to her husband, but she had. Two kids, a son and a daughter, and the daughter is married to Ed Harris.
0: <laughs> One more generation in there, yeah. I th- I think I could be wrong, but it's kind of unimportant that uh, so there's a brother and sister in the modern day version of this story, and the sister's husband, new husband, Hank, played by Ed Harris, but the mother is the niece to the character Aunt Bedelia, so it's like she's their great aunt.
1: Okay. Bedelia
0: is my aunt,
1: which means that she's Richard and Cass's great aunt, which also means that she's older than God. So she is telling the story of Bedelia, who seven years earlier killed her father because her father was this horrible, horrible person who treated his daughter like a slave because he believed that everyone was just out for his money, which apparently meant that he could be an asshole to his daughter.
0: Well, and killed... Her beau, who's yes. an older gentleman.
1: She finally met someone was going to leave her father, and her father had him killed. Uh-huh. Which is hilarious. I don't know how a character, like, I don't know how you could be so dumb as to kill the one person that you completely rely on. Like, obviously she's going to kill you.
0: <laughs> oh, it's to kill the, the the lover of the one person you completely rely on, yeah. Well, it's an arrogance thing. You think you have complete control over them, and it turns out you don't.
1: Yes. They do have a
0: breaking point. So she ends up killing him on Father's Day as he shouts for his cake. He wants his Father's Day cake. yes. and uh, she, and she was
1: making it for him. Like she yeah. like you might be thinking that she's trying to ignore him or she's treating him badly. She's not. He just is just won't shut the fuck up. And so she finally has enough and she cracks.
0: And how does she kill him?
1: With an ashtray.
0: An ashtray that we will continue to see throughout this movie in every single segment following this one.
1: Not sure why.
0: (laughs) It's just like the linking element. They're just like, hey, wouldn't it be neat? A little Easter egg.
1: Ampedelia finally shows up and Ed Harris is like, great, we can eat. And she's like, oh, no, no. The great niece is like, no, no. Now she's going to go out into the cemetery. She's going to meditate for an hour. And then uh, when she comes in, we will all sit down to a delicious baked ham dinner. Uh So Bedelia's sitting out there. She's reminiscing. She's having this monologue moment about her father. And she ends up knocking over her whiskey that she's been drinking. Apparently that brings her back. Has whiskey brought people back before in other movies?
0: Not other movies. This is an old Irish thing. Okay. There are songs and stories from Ireland that tell about whiskey bringing the dead back to life. And probably most famously, Finnegan's Wake, where he's brought back to life when somebody spills whiskey on him at the wake. Apparently, the Gaelic word for whiskey translates to water of life.
1: And I guess it's a pretty cool effect. When you consider the fact that they could have gone even sillier than they did because they went really silly with the first skeleton that we saw at the kid's window. Mm -hmm. So you could tell that they were going for a more scary effect here.
0: What did you think of it? I thought it looked pretty good, especially like when it talked. It's not like fully articulating, but I didn't get the sense that it was like a prosthetic that was stretching when it should have been bone, which is good. But it wasn't so good that I could tell it was articulating at the jaw or anything like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But it, it, it was pretty impressive. The effects, by the way, are done by Tom Savini, who we see all over the fucking place and George Romero has used before. He was one of the bikers and one of the makeup guys from Dawn of the Dead.
1: Yes. We had an awesome scene of Ed Harris and his wife disco
0: dancing. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I wrote My note here is, love the dancing.
1: It's awesome. <laughs> and... Her mother is like, turn it off, and her daughter just ignores her, and she says it again, and Ed Harris smoothly dances over and turns (laughs) it off. Uh, But the wife's not happy about it. She doesn't appreciate that he did what what her mother told them to Uh do. So is the implication here that they are all rich because Bedelia...
0: Killed the the guy, yeah. So
1: she got the money. Why would he even have his daughter in the will if that was all he was upset about all the time? Why not just cut him off?
0: What are you talking about?
1: His whole thing was that all you people are waiting for is for me to die to get my will. Oh, a bunch of so why not just cut them out of the will?
0: Cut who out of the will? No, he's using her. He has to keep her in the will. Otherwise, she'd leave.
1: I guess. That makes sense. I hate Ed Harris's death scene.
0: Yeah, because he doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah, so he goes out to have a cigarette. He hears something. He finds Bedelia's dead body. I forget why, but he, like, falls. And then when he looks up, he sees that the tombstone above him is going to fall on him. But instead of, you know, trying to run away, trying to roll away, he just keeps sitting there and like, he'll move a, sa- a, a tiny bit and it'll move a tiny bit. But it's like, if you moved quickly enough, yeah. you could probably get out of the way.
0: But then he sees the father's skeleton corpse thing and it's like controlling it. So he's kind of trapped between the skeleton and the tombstone. And yes, he, he probably could have definitely just rolled up out. He's not six feet down in this grave. Right. He's like. Six inches. (laughs) He can just roll out of this thing. Yes. But he doesn't. And it falls on him, killing him. Ed Harris is dead.
1: So now everybody's like, where the fuck is he? So... The woman goes into the kitchen, finds the The mom. Yeah, finds the the maid dead. Then she dies. Well, the maid
0: being dead is important because the maid is the same maid that worked for the father originally and helped Bedelia clean up the scene to where it wasn't murder.
1: Yes. And then he kills Bedelia's niece.
0: Yes, the mom. Snapping her neck and ultimately, like, twisting it off of her body. Yeah. Because when the brother and sister go looking for their mom, he comes out of the kitchen holding, like, a food tray with the head on top of it.
1: It has frosting and candles on it. Why wouldn't he do that to his daughter's head?
0: Yeah, because it's just supposed to be twisted. That's the thing. You're not supposed to think too much about this. Yes, he would have done that to Bedelia, ultimately. But he said, I finally got my cake. And then it ends that, and then it fades into, the same way it happens every single time, into and out of every segment, we see it go from a comic book panel into the movie and vice versa. And so it cuts back to the comic book. Anything else to say about Father's Day?
1: It just upsets me because it's like, he got what he deserved. And then he came back and ended up winning. And that bothers me. No,
0: you got it. This is my point. Sometimes it's about bad people getting what they deserve. We'll talk about that when we get to they're creeping up on you. But sometimes it's just bad things happen to people. And I feel like they probably could have emphasized maybe a little bit more that these were obnoxious people. Like the mom was arrogant. The brother was was drunk. Yeah, but he was also a big dick, you know, and they're all, you know, affluent dickheads. But I feel like they could have accentuated that a little bit more because at this point. None
1: of them did anything to make me think they deserve to die. that's,
0: That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I mean. So if you wanted that bad people getting their comeuppance thing, that's how it that's how you get it is you accentuate that. But not all these stories are like that. Some some stories are like this isn't supposed to make you feel good. You're supposed to think that this is fucked. That's what makes it creepy. If bad things only happen to bad people, that would make you feel good. And horror comics are not here to make you feel good. So that's that's that. We do get an interstitial between the two. You know, like we say, we cut, we cut back to the comic book. The pages turn. We get a fan letters column, which is weird because it says, oh, I love it. Give me more. But this is also supposed to be the first issue of Creepshow Comics. So I don't know how they got that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: And then it brings us to our next story which is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Walk us through that, Kelsey.
1: This is my least favorite of all of them. <laughs> it's just it's it's Stephen King being absolutely silly completely. Yes. Like there's nothing scary about this segment. There's nothing creepy about this segment it's just silliness he is a yokel who thinks he's found a meteorite ends up breaking it open and releasing the the chemical that's inside it and mixes it with water which allows it to spread and it's basically just moss and grass that will grow on anything it touches and it touches everything and be, because he's an idiot and he thinks crazy things he doesn't do anything about it and then he dies
0: he kills himself
1: yeah well he kills himself
0: with a shotgun yeah but it's a lot of him being like oh hey i can i can turn in this fucking th-. and it's just him him having these f- imagination moments i well they're not flashbacks but they're effectively that yeah it's that's kind of all there is to it. He watches wrestling. He sees Bob Backlund fight the Wild Samoans. Yeah, like there's not much going on here. No. It's, there's a lot of Stephen King-isms, you know, where he gives people these sort of like backcountry sayings that nobody says. <laughs> oh, my look is always in and it's always bad. He just says that over and over again. Yes, he does. You know, I, oh, my luck is always in, and it's spelled. I expected him to say M-O-O-N, uh? but he doesn't. He says B-A-D. Their luck's always in. You spell that kind of luck B-A-D.
1: Yeah, and he just imagines that, like, he's going to get $200 for his meteor, not a cent less, uh-huh. pay off his bank loan, and... He imagines that if he goes to the doctor, the doctor will cut off his own, his fingers. Yeah. It's silly. It's that's just kind so of the horror silly elements. crap. Yeah.
0: But he's also alone, and that sort of isolation is kind of tragic. And that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be, you know, you're seeing – that's why they call it the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. You're seeing this country bumpkin die alone.
1: And what am I supposed to get out of that?
0: It's supposed to feel shitty. Cool. That's what these comics are about. (laughs) But this is my point. If you're not into that, you're not going to be into this movie. And that would probably explain why you're not into it.
1: There is a little sign at the end, though, uh, that says Castle Rock. It's supposed to be showing you that the moss is growing and will eventually take over the earth. But there's a sign that says Castle Rock.
0: And it also says Portland. Uh, which is the town in Maine where Stephen King was born.
1: Not Portland, Oregon.
0: No, not Portland, Oregon. The ashtray in this one, by the way, is at the Department of Meteors. <laughs> it's on that dude's desk. After this one, we get an interstitial showing an ad for, like, authentic voodoo dolls. And, you know, the little sent mail away voucher has been cut out it adds some authenticity to it there were a lot of those sorts of ads in these sorts of comic books and yes kids would cut them out and mail them in with shipping and handling to get something sent to them in return
1: like a buzzer for your hand or Uh x-ray glasses or an
0: instructional pamphlet on how not to get sand kicked in your face
1: (laughs) is that in there
0: yeah it's you know you don't want to get picked on anymore get this it's You know, it'll get you big and strong so you don't get bullied and, yeah.
1: Fun. So the next one is probably my favorite story from this movie. It's called Something to Tide You Over.
0: Yes. Starring Ted Danson as Harry and Leslie Nielsen as Richard in the bulk of this segment. Yes. Leslie Nielsen. So great. Love Leslie Nielsen.
1: He's legitimately creepy in this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He gets to play a bad guy, which is not something he often got to do. A lot of people know him as like a comedic actor from spoof movies, like the Naked Gun series and other, other things like that. The Police Squad TV show. like um, Airplane. Airplane was like the first big thing he did that made him like a comedic star. Uh, before that, he was a dramatic actor. But this is like a weird turn for him. I think for most of the public was him playing this sort of sinister villain.
1: So he comes to Ted Danson's house, and Ted Danson ain't no fool. He's got a lock on the door.
0: (laughs) Ted Danson ain't no fool? Nope.
1: But Leslie Nielsen says, you'd better let me in. And I don't know why you wouldn't just immediately call the police.
0: Well, he says he has Becky or whatever. Before
1: any of that. He doesn't tell him any of that until he comes inside. At
0: first, he's just threatening the guy. No, he says something that's like, you need to let me in or else something bad will happen to Becky. Like, he threatens him in some way that forces Ted Danson to let him in. Come on, get out of here. You listen to me, Harry, and listen carefully. Unless you let me in and talk to me, something very nasty is going to happen to Rebecca. So nasty that your little mind can barely conceive it.
1: I don't know, I would immediately have called the police. But that's just me. Uh-huh. So he comes in and he's like, Look, you found out about us, but hey, don't worry, man. She doesn't want anything from you because he's like super rich. Yeah. It's nothing like that. She just wants to leave. You couldn't have asked for anything better. Right. And Leslie Nielsen's like, well, uh, that would be fine. If I was sane about things that are mine. Yeah. But I'm not sane about things that are mine. Yeah. So this is not okay.
0: Yeah. Because he's more upset that something is being taken from him. Not that he cares about what that thing is. It's the act of losing something he cannot accept.
1: Yes. So he plays a tape for him that has the girl screaming on it for him. So Ted Danson agrees to go with Leslie
0: Nielsen. Uh-huh.
1: So he takes him to... The beach.
0: His private beach.
1: Yes. When they get out of the car, Ted Danson's like, well, where the fuck is she? And he's like, oh, just come on over here. And he's like, she's waiting for her night in shining corduroy. Uh, So Leslie Nielsen does get some funny lines in here. uh So then Ted Danson comes up to a hole in the beach, like in the sand. And... Leslie Nielsen takes a gun out on him and says, get in the hole or I'll shoot you. Yeah. To which, at first, Ted Danson says, fine, go ahead and shoot me. But Leslie Nielsen says, if I do, then you'll never find out what happened to my wife, your lover.
0: Becky, who, by the way, is played by Galen Ross in this. She hasn't done much, but she was Francine in the original Dawn of the Dead.
1: Oh, interesting. And so Ted Danson can't help himself and gets in and ends up putting all of the sand on top of himself. When he's in there, he realizes that he might leave him there to drown with the tide coming in. So he starts to yell out, help, help. And Leslie Nielsen's like, you can scream all you want. There's no one around here. And I love it. He then screams himself. Uh-huh. He then screams help, for help.
0: help. Yeah, just mocking him. Help! Yell all you want, Harry. Comfort point is very private. I own it all. Help! 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 Nobody's going to hear you, Harry. Nobody's going to hear anything.
1: There's a creepy part where a crab walks up to him and uh-huh. Leslie Nielsen ends up kicking it away after scaring the hell out of Ted Danson.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And Ted Danson then gets to see what happened to Becky.
0: Yeah, so Leslie Nielsen sets up a television, a VCR far enough away that it's not the VCR is not going to get wet, but the television right in front of Ted Danson's face and a camera on a tripod looking at Ted Danson's head. And... We get to see, yeah, the footage that's being taken further down the beach, where Becky's in the same exact situation, except the tide's coming in a little bit faster over there.
1: Oh, I don't think it's happening live. I think this already happened. Yeah, he says that. She lost the coin toss.
0: Yeah, so she was buried down further down the beach where the tide comes up further.
1: I think she's already
0: dead. Because he doesn't say anything about... I mean, you may be right. You may be right. But he doesn't say anything about... When she was buried, just where she was buried, which is further down the beach, which makes me think that it's live.
1: Don't know. But Leslie Nielsen ends up going back to his house to watch the footage. He sees her. She's just screaming her head off and is terrified. And I should also mention that before he left, Leslie Nielsen said, hey, man, there's always the chance that you could hold your breath long enough.
0: He I don't just understand teases him with that a bunch.
1: Yeah, because it, it's not actually possible.:
0: No, I mean, the idea is you got to hold your breath while the waves come, and the higher the tide gets, the longer they're going to be above your nose, and you know, maybe you could hold your breath long enough. To where you won't die, and the tide won't come in high enough to where it permanently keeps you underwater long enough to kill you.
1: But we end up seeing that he's yes. way underwater. And that's,
0: for, that's comedic. That's for comedic effect. Because if that was the case, then the VCR would have shorted out, which we know didn't happen.
1: Okay. But it's pretty great. As he's watching the footage from his house, Ted Danson looks at the camera and... That Leslie Nielsen is watching, and Leslie Nielsen is not happy because the girl is screaming her head off, but Ted Danson refuses to scream. He mm. refuses to get
0: upset or scared, and that upsets Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, at first he's kind of laughing at this, and then as as time goes on, and he just is waiting for this guy to die, he's just kind of getting a little depressed. <laughs> like, it's not giving him the satisfaction he thought it would.
1: And then Ted Danson looks at the camera and says... I'm gonna get you. You hear me, Richard? You hear me, Richard? I'm gonna get you. It's pretty great. Yeah. Because it kind of puts a little bit of a chill uh-huh. in Leslie Nielsen, and I think he does a pretty good job, like, of acting here. Like, he's weirded out by it, but he he doesn't want it to let it let it get to him.
0: Yeah. He's like, whatever. He's gonna die. He can't do anything.
1: I'm gonna get you.
0: I'm going hold your breath there, Harry. hold your breath.
1: So he goes out to the beach later, I guess, to see the dead body. But the body's not there.
0: And he's trying to convince himself the waves took him out to sea.
1: The current got him.
0: Yeah, the current got him.
1: So he goes up into his house. It's, It's time for bed. And mist starts to roll into his house.
0: The ashtray is on his nightstand, by the way.
1: Leslie Nielsen ends up finding... Both his wife and Ted Danson are now, like...
0: Waterlogged sw- corpses. Yes. Yeah.
1: And they are creepy and grotesque. Yeah. For sure. He
0: even tries shooting them, and of course they're not dying.
1: They, he, and it's funny, the way they talk to him is pretty funny, because it seems like they have motivation, <laughs> but also they don't have any life left in them, so it's very, like... They're coming after him, but very uh-huh. slowly and not very, they like... They got their
0: hands out in front of them. And
1: it's almost like zombies, but zombies... the creeping
0: terror of zombies, yeah. Uh-huh. They're going to bury him as well, it, to which he says what as the waves come crashing over his face.
1: Well, I also want to say he runs into his bedroom and shuts the door thinking, okay, they're out there at the, the other side of the, the door, I'll figure this out. But he turns around and they're right behind him and they say... If you can home
0: they grab him and then we cut to him buried neck deep in the sand as waves are crashing down and he says what i can hold my breath a long time.
1: <laughs> yeah but he's dead
0: yes and that's how that one ends and
1: see that one was fun
0: mm-hmm. well because an awful person got their comeuppance yes it originally had a different ending Originally, they showed up, they terrorized him, and they disappeared. He called the cops. The cops showed up, and they're like, ah, you're drunk. What are you saying? These zombies came after you? What are you talking about? And he tries to show them the footage that he had just recorded of them breaking into his house. But somehow, Ted Danson and and Becky, Galen Ross, had changed the tapes To the the footage of them being drowned. And so the cops instead arrest his character, Leslie Nielsen, and sentence him to death. And then he's in the gas chamber, at which point he says, I can hold my breath for a long, long time. I wonder why they changed it. I feel like this is maybe a little more poetic. I mean, the twist, him getting screwed over, people realizing it, him getting caught. There's something appealing about that. But there's something a little bit more poetic about him... Getting killed the same way he killed them.
1: Interesting. I like both endings.
0: Yeah, uh I would have been fine with either one. All right, so the next one we get is the crate with Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau.
1: And this is probably the most involved story here. Yes, it's
0: very long. Not a lot happens for a while,
1: (laughs) but there's a lot more stuff happening in
0: in this. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff you don't really need to know. Like,
1: like yeah,
0: Billy Adrian Barbeau is Hal Holbrook's wife. Hal Holbrook and his buddy are professors at this college, and they play chess like twice a week or whatever. But Billy is a loudmouth drunk, and everyone hates her, and she bullies Hal Holbrook's character, her husband. If it wasn't for me, what would happen to you? You know, whatever, you know, all that stuff. I mean, where would you be without me to take care of you? He's really tired of it, but he's meek. He's not a man, he's a mouse. And he can't do anything about it. That's the truth. How big they setup would have ever
1: movie. ended up together.
0: That happens all the time. It's in it. <laughs> Eddie's wife, isn't she overbearing? Because she reminds him of his mom?
1: Yeah, but I guess we just don't know enough about his character yeah. to know why he But would the end
0: idea of an her. overbearing wife and a meek husband and neither of them being happy is not a new concept in literature or film. But in any case, that kind of sets up all the relationships. But his buddy, Dexter, or Dex, gets a call from the janitor at the college and says, hey, I found this old box. It's marked Arctic Expedition, June 19th, 1834. And so that really intrigues Dex. He's like, oh, I'm going to have to check this out. And so he leaves this party that they're all at.
1: Well, before he leaves the party, what does Henry see in his mind?
0: Oh, yeah. He sees him shooting his wife in the head, and then everyone at the party applauding him and saying, nice shot.
1: <laughs> yes. it's, it's... He,
0: So he imagines killing his wife.
1: See, that stuff is funny. Uh-huh. So at the college, Dexter and the custodian Mike. take the box out from under the stairs where Mike found it. And when they're moving it, the custodian says it feels like something moved in there. When they open it up... They indicate that it smells really bad, and they start to hear things inside. When the custodian looks inside, he says, I see something shiny.
0: Emeralds.
1: Emeralds. (laughs) And he grabs them.
0: He reaches in to grab them.
1: But instead, his arm gets eaten off, just like an it.
0: Yes. uh, This was apparently Tom Savini's first animatronic effect that he'd ever done. So he consulted with Rob Botten on how to do that. Does the name Rob Botten sound familiar to you at all? Yes. He's the guy who did the effects for the thing. Ah. A John Carpenter film. Again, once married to Adrian Barbeau, mm-hmm. who is in this segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were married at the time, and I think the name on the on the crate is like Julie Carpenter or something like that, is the name written on that crate. That it was being sent to. So a little homage to John Carpenter there. Cute. But yeah, it's this monster thing with big teeth.
1: I don't know why he bothered to make an animatronic. It looks like a dude in a monkey suit.
0: Well, when you see the full body, but when you see just the head and the mouth opening up, that's the animatronic.
1: Well. You can't looks do that like with a, a dude
0: in a monkey suit.
1: Looks like a dude in a monkey suit. It it looks real cheap.
0: <laughs> yeah. When you see it bounce around, it's a dude in a monkey suit. <laughs> <laughs> And then it runs back under the um, stairs. And Dex flees, freaking out, and he runs into Charlie.
1: Yeah. Who's a graduate student? Don't understand why. They say, oh, because that's where it stayed safe for all those years. So it's just a creature that doesn't need to eat? I guess not. It can just survive doing nothing?
0: It's from the Antarctic. There's not a lot of life in the Antarctic.
1: But it it just seems like, because he obviously is hungry. Yeah. So it seems like you would want to be out of there and eating
0: things. I don't think it eats to survive. Okay. But yeah, it goes back under the stairway where Mike found it originally. And Dex tries to warn Charlie, don't go in there, don't go in there. And Charlie's like, professor, you are high right now. (laughs) Charlie goes in, Dex tries to stop him. And then they realize that the box is back under the stairs. Like the monster not only went under the stairs, but took the box with it. And so Charlie goes to inspect it, and then Charlie gets attacked and gets to realize right before he dies that Dex was not lying.
1: And surprise, it's not in the box. Yes,
0: it's further underneath the stairs. So Dex freaks out and leaves and goes to Harry's house. Billy, Adrian Barbeau, has already left because she has... What, it's it's a night out with the girls or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be their chess night.
0: Yeah, so she leaves so so Harry and Dex can play chess. And when Dex shows up, he's freaking out and Harry's like, calm down, I'll take care of this. And he drugs Dex to knock him out because he has an idea. And he writes a letter to Billy and he goes to the college. The ashtray is on the table when he writes the letter.
1: I love the scene where she reads the letter.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good.
1: She gets a lot of uh, satisfaction because it's he He writes as if it's this big, juicy gossip thing that's uh-huh. happening. That like
0: Dex attacked some co-ed that he was seeing. And then she went underneath the stairs and she won't come out.
1: And I, I absolutely love the end of it because he says, because as you always say, dear, what would I do without you? And she goes, what indeed, Henry? What indeed? Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and so she drives out there. And shows up, and he's managed to clean everything up just in time. She's like, "What's going on here?" And at one point, he forces her underneath the stairs, and he's like, "Ah, take her, take her, monster eater!
1: Wake up, wake up!" And he's like hitting her against the, uh-huh. the the crate, and she's like looking at him like, "What the fuck?" Because look, I mean, she's a, a shitty wife. But he has no right to just fucking well, beat on her.
0: Also, he's, he's, but he, he's not like smacking her or anything. He's grabbing her and shaking her. He's being violent with her. But she's like, you didn't do anything. You're just annoying me now. What the fuck is this? What kind of man are you?
1: Oh, yeah. And she does this whole berating uh-huh. speech.
0: When was the last time you were a man in our bed, Harry?
1: Yeah, when was the last time you could get it up? Same old Henry.
0: Afraid of your own shadow. You know what, Henry? You're a regular barnyard exhibit. Sheep's eyes, chicken guts, piggy friends, and shit for brains. No good at departmental politics. No good at making money. No good at making an impression on anybody. And no good at all in bed. When was the last time you got it up, Henry? Huh? When was the last time you were a man
1: in our bed? Which is funny because he probably can't get it up because she's such a shrew. Uh-huh. He finally thinks, I guess, now I'm just going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. But the ape busts out and grabs her. Uh-huh.
0: And, and eats her. Do you remember what he says? He says it twice. Like, he tries to get it in the first time when the when the monster doesn't come out. Get in there, Wilma! Just telling you telling to call you Billy, you... And then he says it again once it finally takes him. Oh, just,
1: just tell it, to call your Billy.
0: And then he goes back home, meets up with Dex. Dex is woken up and he walks him through this. Listen, I cleaned up everything. So nobody will think that you killed anybody because that was one of Dex's concerns. And he realized it was a selfish concern. But he's like, people are going to think that I killed Mike and Charlie. And so Henry is like, don't worry. I cleaned it all up for you. Uh, And I got rid of Wilma too, Billy. And we're both in the clear. We both got bad situations cleaned up.
1: Just tell him to call you Billy. That's the line. It's the line that he tries to say Oh, is that the line that he
0: says? Okay, yeah. Just
1: tell him to call you Billy. (laughs) Yeah, and he thinks it's hilarious, so he says it twice.
0: (laughs) And that's kind of how that one ends, right? Oh, no. No, it's not. What he tells Dex is that he chained up the, the box, which is a tense moment because it almost tries to come out as he's trying to lock it up.
1: Yeah, which is extra weird. extra tension.
0: But he's telling the story so we know nothing bad happened. Yeah. Right? And then he throws it into a flooded quarry. And then he says, it's all right. That thing's drowning six, under 60 feet of water or whatever. Then it cuts to this box just bursting open. And this thing didn't need to breathe. It didn't need to eat. So it, it could probably survive underwater too.
1: But it do, it's it like, I don't know what we're supposed to be creeped out about. The thing doesn't want to be around people. It just wants to be left alone. But it
0: kills indiscriminately. And anyth- anybody that comes across it will kill. So it's still a killer. It just doesn't have a hunger. Right.
1: And the eyes are not green like emeralds at the no, end. No,
0: they're kind of yellow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I wrote that down. I was like, they aren't emeralds.
0: <laughs> okay. So the last full segment here, they're creeping up on you. With E.G. Marshall as Upson Pratt. Upson Pratt! Uh, who is, I immediately recognize him as juror number four from 12 Angry Men. But everyone in the entire fucking world actually knows him as Art from Christmas Vacation.
1: <laughs> so do washing machines. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> he worked really hard, Grandpa. Grandma. Oh, yeah. He worked really hard, Grandma. So, so do washing, washing machines. machines. I hope you kids see what a silly waste of resources this was.
1: You worked really hard, Grandma.
0: So do washing machines. That is E.G. Marshall's line. (laughs) (laughs) The lights aren't twinkling, Clark.
1: (laughs) Thanks for noticing.
0: The little lights are not twinkling. I know, Art, and Thanks for noticing. So he's a rich man who... Owns a business and he's trying to conduct a hostile takeover, but he refuses to leave his apartment, which is completely white and futuristic for the time, and completely sanitized. A clean he has, room. Yeah, he has gloves, he has tissues that he that gets suctioned away, so there's no trash lying anywhere, because he hates bugs. And he's he's not insane. This isn't an aviator sort of situation. Where he thinks microscopic bugs are going to kill him. He literally bugs and they do appear. And he's not like, Ha, I told you. He just wants to kill them.
1: Well, the question for a long time is,
0: Are they real? Are they real? Yes, because the only one who gets to see them is him. And it's basically just him being a dick.
1: They don't really explain what he does. He he owns some kind of corporation and they do takeovers. So he's super rich.
0: Yes. And, and they just recently completed a takeover. His assistant or somebody who's high up in the corporation is talking to him about it then they find out that the guy who owned the business that they took over just killed himself he gets a call from that man's wife who calls him horrible and all he does is just mock her
1: yeah he laughs at her and yeah it's funny because the there're really only two things that you get out of this character one is how much he hates bugs And the other is laughing about how much money he has and how miserable everyone else is because of that. Ten minutes later, I heard the shot.
0: Yes, George Genman told me old Norman went out with a bang.
1: How many men have you destroyed? How many men have you killed, you
0: monster? Only the stupid ones. Only the ones who handed me a knife and then stretched out their throats. Only the ones who, if you'll pardon the expression, fucked up. He also tries to fire the building superintendent who decided to go on a vacation, and that's unacceptable. So he needs a call back from him, and so he gets that call back. I need your dude back here running this place and helping me out, and I need an exterminator now, and it's late, late at night. And so the the dude who is actually there at the building ends up stopping by, and it's a black guy, and that's important because... Upson Pratt is a racist. Yes, he is. <laughs> and the guy's like, "Well, as soon as I knew I was looking for a twenty-four hour exterminator, I knew it was you, Mister Pratt." And this guy kind of antagonizes him too, playing a sort of jolly character that's mocking him. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: got bugs, huh?
0: Yeah, <laughs> he's he's playing up a role because he knows that Upson Pratt is a is a racist dickhead.
1: Yes. So then, what happens? I guess the wife of the dude who killed himself has magical powers
0: <laughs> Maybe
1: because basically what they and what ends up happening is his entire apartment gets overrun with cockroaches and the lights go out the power goes out
0: well because they're like flooding the light fixtures and stuff like that and they're fucking with the circuitry and but all the
1: that. power goes out in the entire city too yes there's a blackout.
0: Yeah, so now it's he knows there's bugs everywhere, but now there's no light.
1: Right. And the insinuation at the very end of it is that it's the wife of the dude who died. She's the one putting all the bugs in there and making them kill him. I don't him. think
0: it's necessary that you take that leap. It's just some sort of cosmic justice.
1: She keeps shouting, I hope you die. I hope you die. Yeah.
0: Okay, so the lights come back on, and he realizes the place is literally flooded. He goes into a clean room, and when he hears her voice saying that she hopes he dies, but he's in his his safe room within a, a clean room, he moves a sheet that's on the bed, and it is just covered with cockroaches, and he screams. And then when the dude comes back to check on him with the exterminator, he's not answering. But the entire apartment is squeaky clean. And we're starting to think, oh, he really was crazy. There were no bugs. Because there are bugs fucking nowhere.
1: Honky bastard. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Pratt?
0: You there, Mr. Pratt? Mr. Pratt? Talk to me. (laughs) Talk to me. Talk to me. Honky bastard. And then we see him lying dead on that bed that was supposedly covered with bugs. And then, what happens, Kelsey?
1: They come out of him.
0: Yes, out of his mouth, out of his skin. They come bursting from underneath his skin. It is so fucking creepy. I've heard fluctuating accounts of how many bugs exactly they got, but apparently they got them from the American Museum of Natural History. Because I'm sure they have an entomology department. I've heard 20,000 bugs. I've heard... In the hundreds of thousands, I've also heard that this is one of the most expensive single expenditures of the entire movie, is paying for these bugs just because they had so many of them. In that final scene, where all the bugs come out of him, they end up flooding this safe room he has within the cleaner, like his bedroom area, which has glass walls. And it's just, what, four feet deep, just full of bugs. According to Tom Savini, that was a lot of nuts and raisins, but also the real bugs.
1: I didn't watch most of this segment.
0: Yeah, it's, I just can't. I don't have like a phobia of bugs. Kelsey does. I don't. I don't like them. I think they're weird and gross, but <laughs> they don't scare me. But this was just—it was a lot. It was a bit much.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's purely—it's purely meant for people like me.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. that's
1: that's the only thing this is for.
0: Oh, by the way, when he washes his hands. He's using the ashtray as a soap dish. Hmm. And that's, they're creeping up on you. That's how that one ends. And then we get the epilogue. We see the trash men coming by.
1: How on earth? I mean, you can't. You can't control that many bugs.
0: Right. I think you just need to to do a good job of collecting them. I'm sure they have like vacuums and shit that suck them into containers.
1: There's no way animal rights people are okay with that. Now. I guess you're right. It was 1982, wasn't it? Yeah like
0: you can't oh no, they straight up kill cockroaches in this, which I mean it seems overly cruel, but it i don't I don't really care, but I can see why animal rights groups would, and I'm glad we have these groups that are in place on these sets to protect animals don't get me wrong.
1: I hate bugs. I still think it's wrong to watch people kill them for entertainment.
0: Right, and that's kind of <laughs> what we get here, is they're straight up killing real, actual living bugs?
1: How do you know they're alive? We see them get smashed. Right, but you can make that up. I didn't watch it. I
0: didn't yeah, watch it. So. With cuts and stuff. No, you see one scurrying and then get smashed.
1: Yeah, you think it'd be a fake one. We how, saw, how realistic did my cousin's kid, uh-huh. kid's fake cockroach looked. That yeah. thing fucking looked real. And that
0: was just a hunk of plastic. Exactly. This thing, this thing moved and guts came out of it.
1: Yeah, you, I don't know, but I'm just saying it could have done, been done fake. No, no,
0: no, no. There was absolutely 100%. Like, there was a vacuum thing where he put all of his trash that one got sucked into. Like, if you're saying that that's traumatic for them, that, that definitely happened. <laughs> but anyway, that's, they're creeping up on you. And we get the epilogue. Where we see the trash men, including Tom Savini, taking the trash from the side of the street where they find the creep show comic book. And they talk about, oh man, I used to love these things when I was a kid. Oh, look, there's even a voodoo doll, ad for a voodoo doll. Ah, nah, but someone's already redeemed this one. And then we go into the house where what happened?
1: The dad is sitting down for breakfast, I think, and starts to have lots and lots of pain, ends up dying. It's the kid upstairs poking a voodoo doll.
0: Yes. Joe Hill poking a voodoo doll. The ashtray is on his desk when he's poking the voodoo doll. And that's the end of the movie. Creepshow had a maze at Universal Studios last year, which we did not go through. It was one of the ones there. A buddy of mine eventually went and he said he enjoyed it.
1: I'm guessing they have a cockroach room.
0: That's kind of why I didn't want to bring it up when we were there. Because I knew if that was in there... You would never forgiven me.
1: No, <laughs> I wouldn't have.
0: So yeah, so we didn't actually. It wasn't one of the rooms, one of the mazes that we went through when we went to Halloween Horror Nights. Anything else to say about Creep Show, Kelsey? What are your overall thoughts?
1: I enjoy one to tide you over. I don't mind the crate, even though I think it looks kind of dumb and it doesn't make any sense. Hate the one with Stephen King,
0: the Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill.
1: Can't watch. They're creeping up on you. And the first one irritates me. It's just, it's not a fun watch for me. No, it's,
0: it, I think this movie does a really good job of evoking the same feelings I had, which weren't entirely pleasant, but weren't entirely unwanted either, when I would read those old-timey horror comic books. So I think it is very successful in doing what it sets out to do. And there is something unpleasant about it. But that's kind of the point. You know, I could never explain why I was so intrigued by those comic books because explicitly I I did not like things that happened in it. I was like, no, that sucks. That's awful. That's horrible. And I could not explain why I continued to read them. And I guess that's kind of how people a lot of the time feel about horror movies. That's why you'll see fluctuations in trends of the good guys winning and the bad guys winning, you know?
1: Well. I guess, but my thing is, well, it's fun to get scared. But nothing about this movie scares me, except for bugs. Yeah, but... And that's not the kind of scare I'm looking that's for. That's the thing.
0: They say scares in those old comic books. But nobody's actually getting scared. They're reading images on a page that are very obviously drawn. It's It just sucks you in emotionally. Did you
1: just say that a comic book can't be scary?
0: I... Not really. Huh. I mean, but there isn't a lot that scares me when it comes to media and comic books, books, movies. It's
1: not a lot. Well, that then you're not looking for to be scared. I right, am.
0: Right, right, right. This is my point.
1: Because
0: <laughs> I don't think it's really there to be scary. It's there to be eerie. As a matter of fact, that was the name of one of the horror comics that was out at the time. I guess. It's supposed to be twisted. You're supposed to go, that's fucked up. You're not supposed to go, ah! You're supposed to see people in the stories go, ah! But you're not necessarily supposed to. You're supposed to be compelled in a weird sort of way. And I think that this does a very good job of evoking that same exact feeling. And that, that's not what everyone is looking for. And so I totally understand why you don't like this. But I think it does a good job at what it does. What it sets out to do. With that in mind, what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes?
1: Like a 76?
0: 73. It's uneven, as anthologies often are, Mm -hmm. but Creepshow is colorful, frequently funny, and treats its inspirations with infectious reverence. A Metacritic of 59. Do you think that's overrated or underrated?
1: A little overrated for me.
0: Uh Uh-huh. What would you give it?
1: I was going to give it a 62. 62.
0: I think that I think that 73 is kind of right on the head. I mean, it's not enough to be a 75, but it's definitely more than 70 for me. So I think 73 is perfect. A little bit of a difference, but not much of one. Almost the same difference we had with Annabelle, which neither of us actually liked. <laughs> well, that is our classic film 1982's creep show before we get on to our next before we get on to our modern film kelsey horror trivia
1: what insects are closely associated with the urban legend of Candyman? bees very good i think you're insects
0: yeah okay all right kelsey bill paxton matthew mcconaughey and powers booth the three main stars of our next movie frailty are all from the same state. And the state is where this movie takes place. What state is it? Alabama? Not Alabama. Matthew McConaughey is very much a proud... Texan? He is a Texan, yes. Matthew McConaughey, Bill Paxton, and Powers Booth are all from Texas. Hmm. Where this movie takes place.
1: I was just trying to think of a place that had backwoods type stuff.
0: Yeah. Well... Not sure
1: why, now that I think about it.
0: (laughs) It is originally based off of a real town that Bill Paxton knows of that has a public flower garden. But he was like, I didn't want it to be a thing where a bunch of goth kids (laughs) come by and trash up the flower garden. So we just made up a fake town. But yeah, it is based on a real town in Texas.
1: Did Bill Paxton write it?
0: Bill Paxton did not write it, no. Oh. Frailty from 2001 is our next movie. It is written by Brent Hanley, directed by Bill Paxton, starring Bill Paxton, Matthew McConaughey, Powers Booth, and Matt O'Leary as the young Fenton Meeks. I think he deserves credit. He's very good in this.
1: Do we know him from something else?
0: He's been in other things.
1: Are you just saying it because he was a good actor and it's surprising because he's a kid?
0: Oh, yeah, I think he did a surprisingly good job and...
1: Well, the younger kid played Peter Pan, right? In a weirdly sexualized Peter Pan, too. Like, I remember seeing it, and I was, like, in a senior in high school, and I was like, this is... Why is he behaving this way? He is a 12-year-old boy, and him and Wendy are a little too close for my liking, and it's making me highly uncomfortable. (laughs) Yes,
0: Jeremy Sumpter (laughs) played the young uh, Adam... Matt O'Leary was the brain in Brick. Bit part,
1: but I remember him.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in Live Free or Die Hard. Uh,
1: Walked out of that movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> More modernly, he, you know, he's been in things like uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was in several episodes of that. Yeah, he, he, he's a character actor for a lot of things. But I thought he did a very good job in this movie. I mentioned both Powers Booth and Bill Paxton are from Texas. They also died the same year in 2017. So did? Yeah. uh, Powers Booth and Bill Paxton. Oh. What is frailty about?
1: A widower and his two sons are just trying to get by in 1979 when the father is visited by God and is told that he is going to start destroying demons.
0: He was given a vision from God, but he sees and speaks to an angel. angel. Yeah, that's right. But
1: the vision tells him that he's going to destroy demons and he decides to include his sons in this. Yes. And uh, one son believes him and one son does not.
0: Yes. And the the wrapper of the story is that there is a in the modern day. There is a killer called the God's Hand Killer, and one of the sons wants to turn his brother in. Yes, as the God God's Hand Killer. So he talks to Powers Booth, who is the detective in charge of the case, and tells the story of growing up with a father who thought he could destroy demons. I mean, it's kind of like supernatural, but not comedic. Right. Even though Supernatural came later. But, you know, a single father raising two kids to destroy demons.
1: Yes. Yeah. Very much so.
0: The movie is available at most major digital stores for $4 to rent and either $8 or $10 to buy. Should people watch Frailty? Yes. Yes. If you listened to our last episode, we we told you yes. We hadn't yet seen it again at that point, but now we have. And yes, you should watch it. It's a little 2001 Yes. If that means anything to you, it <laughs> definitely means something to me. It just has that 2001 feeling yes. where everything wanted to be seven. You know, like, it, it. yeah. So, but it's very good. And I think, like I said, Matt O'Leary does a great job. Bill Paxton does a passable job. He's, okay, rest in peace, Bill Paxton. He was never a great actor. <laughs> And he's asked to do a lot in this one. And I think this is probably, it's not a perfect performance, but it's probably one of his best. Like thinking about other things where he's been asked to act.
1: I can't think of anything else that he's
0: been serious in. Right? This is my point. Like what, Twister, Aliens...
1: Okay, you cannot count Aliens as a serious performance.
0: Terminator. But this or is my Terminator. Point. This is my point, though. Twister Titanic. It's a good one. Titanic. He's barely in Titanic, but Twister is a good one.
1: <laughs> I just watched that the other day just because I wanted to. Did you know that?
0: Yes, I saw that you had seen that. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I remember Twister, man.
1: It's an amazing cast.
0: But he, in this movie, he asked himself to do some acting that I don't remember ever seeing him do before. And aside from the fact when he needs to, like, look shocked when he sees demons and it's a little over the top, I thought he does a really good job as this religious father who loves his sons and realizes that he's asking them to do something that's really difficult. He does a really good job of it, I gotta say. Yeah, overall, very good movie. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2001's Frailty. I know who the goddamn killer is. The masters of suspense agree. Stephen King calls frailty thought-provoking edge-of-your-seat entertainment. Those were demons, so why can't you see that? The most disturbing horror picture I've seen since The Shining Rave Spider-Man director Sam Raimi. Ah! And James Cameron calls it electrified. It'll keep you guessing until the last shot. Bill Paxton, Matthew McConaughey. Frailty. Only demons should fear me. You're not a demon, are you? Rated R starts Friday, April 12th. Kelsey, why don't you walk us through the beginning of Frailty?
1: So the opening credits sequence is just a bunch of newspaper clippings, and it's showing you that there's been a string of murders. And yes, it feels very much like the beginning of Seven type thing. Yeah. Powers Booth walks in. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the chief of police or something. He's,
0: he's sheriff. He's a detective of the FBI.
1: Detective.
0: Yeah. And he's the head of the God's hand case.
1: He walks in and he asks the the lady at the front desk, you know, what's the ambulance doing out there? And she doesn't know, and he sees his guy his guy in command I mean, his partner, his right-hand man.
0: Yeah, just one of the deputies there, the FBI.
1: And he tells him, hey, this guy is in there and he was asking for the agent in charge of the God's Hand case, which as Chris just said, is is Powers Booth. He walks in and we see Matthew McConaughey, who will introduce himself as Fenton Meeks. And he tells him that he knows who the God's Hand killer is. Yep. And he notices that the detective doesn't You know, already you already doubt me. Why? Well, nobody just walks in and says, "I know who the killer is." And he goes, "Well, it's my brother." And we get a flashback scene of his brother Adam, who says that he can't handle all the he can't kill all the demons anymore. I'm going to kill myself. Remember that you promised that you'd bury me in the rose garden. And he shoots himself. So in order to make sure that his brother was. Buried in the Rose Garden He stole his brother's body yeah. Which is why he has the ambulance Out front uh-huh. But he says I can't live Because obvi- the guy's like well why would you come and tell me this And he says I can't live with what I know anymore
0: Yeah And he's
1: like I'm going to tell you a story <laughs> So he proceeds to tell us Most of the film will be In this flashback Of Thurman in the summer of 79
0: Summer of 79, not quite
1: 69.
0: No. Summer of 79.
1: (laughs) McConaughey tells us as the narrator that their mom died giving birth to his brother Adam, who is three years younger than he is. His father is doing his best. Yes, that's Bill Paxton doing his best to raise his two sons without his wife. Mm -hmm. Basically, Fenton being the older brother takes care of the younger brother, he cooks and cleans and all that stuff. And the dad is a mechanic. And it's just they're a very happy, perfect, loving family. And, you know, the dad's like, we're going to work on that math junk this weekend, you and me, Fenton. We're going to make sure that you're ready to do it, to take the next test. And that night, when they're going to sleep, Fenton is saying he wants to sneak into an R-rated movie, uh, The Warriors, which I still have not seen.
0: You haven't seen The Warriors? Never seen The Warriors. Oh, my God. Okay, listen. It's iconic. And that's kind of why it's good. I think you should see it.
1: Okay. But his brother doesn't want to, and he Uh. basically convinces his older brother to not sneak in.
0: Interestingly, the original film in the script, apparently, was Alien. (laughs) It being 79, Alien would have been in the theaters around then, because I think what Alien was is technically dated as 78, I think, but would have come out around this time. But Bill Paxton was like, uh, it'd feel a little self-serving if I advertised for a movie franchise I was in.
1: But he wasn't in Alien.
0: My words were.
1: Franchise. Franchise. Yes. I know, but.
0: He's like, it seemed cheesy. It seemed like everyone would know. <laughs> And that would be the conversation, and that's not what he was looking for. So instead he chose the warriors.
1: But that doesn't happen, because in runs their dad in the middle of the night to tell them about a vision that he had from God. And it came from, like, a light on his trophy.
0: Yeah, so he has a trophy from some time in his life. And on the trophy is like this angel figure, and it just shines brightly. And then he comes bursting into his kid's room and is like, I got a vision from God.
1: Yeah, he says that God has a special purpose for our family. The end of the world is coming. The final battle is already happening. We are going to pitch demons out of this world.
0: Bill Paxton is not an idiot. The scripted thing is that they would all be sitting on the same bed. He decided against that. He left the kids in their own bed. And then dad, who, by the way, never gets a name, Bill Paxton sits on Adam's bed, not Fenton's. And then when we're getting the point of view shots from Fenton and from his dad looking at Fenton, they're slowly backing away from each other visually, showing that, okay, this is the moment where Fenton gets separated from his brother and his father. It's not profound, but but it's not like, you know, he consciously made a decision to... Put something in the cinematography.
1: Well, I would, yeah. I mean, I would think that Bill Paxton has enough
0: experience. Yeah. To or know. Had enough experience, I guess. RIP. Yeah.
1: So the next day, the boys wake up. Everything seems normal. Fenton is like, oh, thank God. Maybe this was all just a dream. Uh huh. In fact, his brother Adam looks at him. He's like, what's wrong with you? So they go downstairs. They have breakfast. Everything seems great. And then when he drops them off at school, Make sure you don't tell anyone what I said. Yeah. Meaning it was not a dream. It really did happen. Later that day, Bill Paxton will be driving to work, and God will talk to him by shining sun rays on a barn. Because he said that there would be three...
0: Weapons. Weapons. He says specifically.
1: And God has to show them to him. And this is the first one. It is an axe. First
0: and second. He gets the axe and the gloves at the same time.
1: That's right. The axe and the gloves, but the axe has the name Otis written on it, which I've always wondered about.
0: Yes, that's intentional. Otis doesn't mean jack shit. Otis was, well, in the story, Otis is probably just the name of the guy who owns the barn where the axe is. Doesn't mean anything, but it's there to, number one, give more personality to the axe, make it like a character in the story, confirm later on when we see the axe again, that it's the same axe. But ultimately, it's the name of a homeless man in Pasadena that Bill Paxton gave money to. That's where the name comes from. The homeless man said he didn't want any charity. And so Paxton offered to buy his name, buy the use of his name. And instead of just giving him money, gave him money in exchange for, okay, well, let me use your name in my movie. And then he put Otis on the axe. Wow. Yeah.
1: Okay. Eventually, he will find the third weapon, which is a lead pipe. I don't think they ever tell us where he finds that.
0: No, he just comes home with it.
1: He then gets a list of the first seven demons.
0: Now, here's the thing. This movie, throughout it, will heavily suggest that this is real. And Fenton kind of refuses to believe it. Because from Fenton's perspective, how can you ever know what anyone else experiences? Right. How could he ever know whether his dad really saw God or spoke to an angel or got this list from some divine source or his dad is just crazy. But these names are real people that he did not know previously, which implies that it is real.
1: They are random names. Mm -hmm. But
0: it is it is a, a question that's asked throughout the length of the movie. Is dad crazy or is this real? And that's the, that's the conflict that Fenton is going to go through for the majority of this movie.
1: And I, I For all you
0: know, he just got him out of the phone book.
1: Right. Absolutely. Because
0: we don't know where he got the names.
1: And I do love that it ends up, for me, I think it's real. Yeah. Based on what happens. I think it is real. But I do love, first of all, the first time I saw this was not convinced at all, was convinced Fenton was correct. Yes. And was just like... This is what it would be like to be the child of a crazy person who goes insane and starts to murder people. Like, this is what it would be like. And you see very quickly that the younger son agrees to it so quickly. Yep. Now, the younger son has reason to agree later, but at first he doesn't and he just goes along with it. And it's, and it's just an interesting look because as we hear more and more horrible stories of child abuse, the question is, how did they get away with it when they had more than just one kid? You know, like, how did the other kids not respond yeah. to it? And it's like, when this is what your parents tell you is normal and you're a child and have no life yeah. experience... Yep.
0: Children are very suggestible. When you think about the fact that you have a kid and they're going to ask you, what is this? What does this mean? What is that? And you're providing them answers. Generally speaking, the kid doesn't go, no, I don't believe you. They go, oh, okay. And then asks more questions, right? So you are the source of truth for a child. What happens when that source of truth has gone crazy? It's an interesting question and it's believable, That this child would go along with it and convince themselves that they see things that they don't really see. So Adam at this point is 100% unreliable. We cannot trust anything he says he sees or hears or believes. Even at one point, this might be skipping ahead a little bit, but it, it, it makes sense to talk about it now. At one point. Adam says God talked to me too And he gave me a list of demons to destroy too And it's really just like The bully that picked on him at school And this is where the dad explains Listen to me son
1: You can't just make stuff like that up We destroy demons If we
0: were to use your list we wouldn't be destroying demons We'd be killing people And we can never do that And destroying demons is a good thing Killing people is bad
1: You understand? I'm sorry, Dad. That's all right. It's okay.
0: Just got to have a little patience. Don't worry. God will send you your own list when you're older. Adam has this little lesson that he has to learn.
1: And Fenton is sickened by
0: it. Yes. He cannot believe that his little brother would want to kill one of his school bullies. Oh, I I think he's more sickened
1: by his father.
0: Yeah, that's the second Developing this story Mm-hmm. Of
1: good and evil, and that he knows what good and evil is, yeah, Fenton does say to his father, "Maybe you just dreamed it, and the dad's like, "I wouldn't make up something like that." and it's like that's, that's not what a dream
0: is <laughs> that's
1: not what your son said,
0: right, uh-huh.
1: He gets another vision of an angel in a giant church while he's doing work under a car, and it's really funny. They show him just sitting there under a car. But in yeah. his imagination, it's become this giant church.
0: Yes, and then this angel comes down with wings and armor and this blonde hair and beard and with a sword on fire.
1: And he is explained to you that that they will look like humans, but when he put his, puts his hands on them, they will be able to see that they are demons.
0: And that's what the gloves are all about.
1: And Fenton is explaining, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to go to the police. I wanted to tell someone, but what can you do? This is my father and I loved him. And then one day the father will come home with a woman and he will say she is a demon, not a woman. And when he touches her, it's interesting because we kind of get two different shots of the same scene every time he does this. When he touches her... When we see it from Bill Paxton's perspective, he has this crazed look on his face and the the person usually does for a second when he first touches them. Mm. Like, oh my God, he can see it too. Uh, Or,
0: oh my God, what is he doing?
1: Right. And that's what it looks like more when Fenton sees it. When we see it the second time, because we always see this done twice. We see it first from Bill Paxton's point of view, then we see it further away from Fenton's point of view. And when Bill does it, there is a moment every time then the person has this moment of like, oh, my God, he can see it. But when Fenton looks at it, he the person looks like, what is this person doing?
0: Yeah. So this is the influence of James Cameron, apparently. Bill Paxton would come to James Cameron and ask for advice and stuff like that. Ask him to, you know, like, hey, check out this is the movie I'm making. Do you have any advice for me or whatever? And James Cameron suggested that he not show the demon stuff that we see at the end. Here at the beginning and Paxton's quote from James Cameron is you got to remember film is so literal that you're going to split the audience. And a lot of them are going to believe that the dad really is seeing all this stuff. And you don't want that to happen because you want them to go with Fenton. So don't show us any demon stuff. We don't show us the things from the dad's perspective because that might poison the perspective of the audience. You know, you're supposed to see this from this kid's perspective who doesn't believe any of this stuff. And that was apparently James Cameron.
1: Now, also, guys, I don't want anybody yelling at me. I'm not saying that, like, they did the exact same shot of him grabbing the lady twice. I'm saying that the way it's filmed, it's very clearly showing you this is how Bill Paxton sees this. This is how Fenton sees this. Yes. Also, the first time Bill Paxton touches the woman, I could have, I mean, it seems like he touches her and she bleeds. Right? Now, the question is, maybe it was already from where he had already hit her yeah. over the head with mm-hmm. the lead pipe. Or is it that when he touches her, she bleeds? And
0: this question will happen the entire movie.
1: Yes. And he's so sickened by with what he sees that he ends up chopping off her head.
0: And we see this. We don't see it happen on screen. In particular, the only violence you really ever see on screen is the aftermath of violence or somebody being hit on the head with a pipe. Yes. Like you you don't see the act ax, the axe is used several times. It's always used off-screen or swung towards off-screen so you don't see where it hits. But we see this shot in particular, the first kill, we we experience it behind us. The camera is focusing in on Fenton.
1: Yes. And his
0: reaction to it and it is chef's kiss perfect. His reaction to it is great. He's, like, bracing himself for what he knows is about to come, but he's terrified and mortified. And all of that on this little kid's face is just perfect.
1: I agree. I think the kid did an outstanding job. And that is when Fenton tells his dad, I'm going to go to the police. This is wrong. And the dad tells him, if you tell anyone... Someone is actually going to die,
0: I think he says that he's gonna die, not Fenton, but the dad I'm I think going he said to die
1: someone is going to die, yeah, but the implication being not a demon <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. a human being, yeah, this is when we will catch up with the with Matthew McConaughey and Powers Booth,
0: Matthew McConaughey is agreeing to take Power's Booth to the Rose Garden where he buried his brother and where the other bodies are buried.
1: Powers Booth is like, why didn't you just tell me that the bodies were in the Rose Garden in the first place? And he goes, well, would you have believed me?
0: Powers Booth at one point even calls the the town's sheriff's office, and this woman answers, this blonde, and he says, oh, I got Fenton with me. And he's like, oh, Fenton's with you? Okay, well, have him bring back the ambulance. Nobody wants to press any charges. And, you know, Powers Booth comments on, you know, Aren't small towns great? Or maybe it's Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey. Does says yeah. That. Uh-huh. Gotta love
1: small towns. Yeah,
0: uh huh. But he's gonna take him there. And when they get outside the FBI office, Powers Booth tosses him handcuffs and and tells him to put them on. And that if he doesn't put them on, then he'll put them on for him. And then they get in his car. Matthew McConaughey in the back, and Powers Booth in the front, and they drive.
1: And did you notice what happened when he got in the back? The cop goes to push his head down.
0: Oh yes he's like, no, I got it. Matthew
1: McConaughey <laughs> says, no, I've got it.
0: That very cop thing of watch your head, but it's also like a forceful thing. Yes. Um, so the a large chunk of this movie is going to be now Matthew McConaughey telling his story to Powers Booth as they're driving to the Rose Garden.
1: We didn't mention that before they left his office, Matthew McConaughey noticed a picture of the the cop and his mother. Yeah. And on the drive... Matthew McConaughey will say, "Why do you only have one picture of your mother in your office?" And he's like, "Not that it's any of your business, but she was murdered a couple days after that picture was taken." And Matthew McConaughey's like, "Oh, is that why you became a police officer to catch the guy that was never caught?" And he goes, "Ha ha, you're so good. You might as, you might want to be a detective."
0: Right? Yeah, you got you got a detective's instincts.
1: Yeah, and he goes, well, what are your instincts telling you? And he's like, my instincts are telling me that you're hiding something.
0: Yeah. So the story continues on.
1: Back to 1979. Fenton will no longer walk through the Rose Garden now that that's where his father's bodies are being buried, even though it doesn't bother Adam one bit. Right. And the kid was, uh, Fenton was hoping that things were going back to normal. They hadn't heard anything. A month had gone by. Everything seemed like maybe it was, that would be over. But when he gets home, his father tells him, we've got work to do in the morning. So they drive somewhere to go to get the second person the next day. They find the guy and they follow him to a parking lot. And the dude goes into a store of some kind and paxton is reading the newspaper fenton is watching and there was a fun little swing of the camera here so fenton oh it
0: really is fun yeah
1: (laughs) fenton sees that the guy is coming out he turns to look at paxton and the camera is following fenton's line of sight and he sees that his father is still reading the newspaper looks back sees the guy is a lot closer to his car He's starting to feel like, oh, thank God, maybe this won't happen. Turns and looks, and his father's already seen him. Yes,
0: it's, oh, perfect. Now, I don't know if that's Bill Paxton as the the director or Bill Butler as the cinematographer, so I want to make sure he gets credit as well. There are some really good camera movements in this movie.
1: Yes, it was very well done. And his father is making him help get this guy. And his plan is to have Fenton under the car, or looking under the car, crying, well crying because he knows what his dad's going to do yes
0: so good like it fenton fenton's performance here is so believable and then it has that extra layer that it's believable because fenton the character is terrified of what's going to happen and that's why he's crying yes. and it's oh it's so good there is an important conversation that happens in this van before they perform this is that fenton brings up aren't people going to see us it's out in broad daylight we're in a parking lot and Bill Paxton says that-
1: Oh They won't. It's broad daylight.
0: I told you, God will blind them for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we do our duty, you know, basically. So that's going to come up later, too. So yes, Fenton's on the ground looking under the car crying.
1: Saying that his dog is under the dude's car. And when the dude starts to bend down, Bill Paxton hits him over the head with a pipe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They get back to their house, and they're carrying the body in, and he makes his son help him carry the body in. He's still crying, and he's really upset. And they carry him in, and the and Bill Paxton again touches him, has the same reaction.
0: He tells us what he sees this time, actually. Yes. That, that he killed little children? Kills or babies. Kills babies, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yes. And he's like, you didn't think anybody saw that, did you? But you can't escape God's wrath. Uh-huh. And he
0: kills him. Chops his head off again.
1: That night, Fenton will talk to his brother, Adam, and ask him to run away with him. And he, he finally tells him the things that dad is saying are not true. And Adam's like, what are you talking about? When he touches them, I see it.
0: Yeah. But again, I believe that a little kid would say, there was a game we would play uh, when I was a very, very young kid. I didn't learn how to swim, but we were given, like, pool lessons of, like, being comfortable in the water. I never learned how to swim from this, but I was more comfortable being in a pool, at least. And they would tell us to, as little kids, stick your head underwater, and there's this person or whatever that you're going to see, and you describe what he looks like. Tell me what clothes he's wearing and stuff like that. And it's combining a child's imagination with, you know, encouraging us to put our faces underwater and opening our eyes, right? That you'll be okay. And it was effective because I did it And I remember describing This person I saw And to me it was almost like a jester I remember there being striped leggings and a jester's hat or whatever And I don't know if that's because they Implanted that thought into our heads or not But the point is I saw it It was not there <sighs> I was very, very suggestible as a young child in this regard. Even when I got older, I knew I didn't see it, but it was real to me. And so, like, the that's idea... Weird. <laughs> it's a part of a class. They did it to all the kids that were there, and all of us participated. And that's my point, is kids at that age are very, very suggestible. And they just say they see things even when they don't.
1: It's just funny, because I remember very specifically... Probably because of my love of Drop Dead Fred. I so desperately wanted an imaginary
0: friend. Yeah, but you so didn't have one and that made you upset?
1: I didn't have one. And <laughs> Why I is I w- an imaginary person coming to me? <laughs> I would try to create one and I was like, this is weird. Uh-huh. There's no one there. I'm talking to myself. Like, And it wasn't the same as playing with your dolls because you knew you were playing. Uh-huh. I wanted to have... A person there. Yeah, I
0: never had an imaginary friend either, I don't think.
1: But, like, I, I've always been far too realistic and just, like, no, nothing there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, this upsets Adam so much that he goes and tells on him to his dad. And Fenton is just like, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave my brother. Yeah. So, the father is now angry and he tells him, all right, God... Has spoken to me and has told me something, but I refuse to believe it, Yeah, which is weird because if you believe in God, I'm pretty sure God is right. Well, he (laughs) thinks
0: it's a test. Maybe. And so he wants to prove that Fenton can believe in all this stuff and that he can be a warrior for God. And how is he going to prove that?
1: He tells Fenton to dig an enormous hole.
0: 15 feet by 15 feet by 10 feet deep.
1: Yes. He says, I expect half of that to be done by the end of today, which makes no sense because it ends up taking the kid five days.
0: Of nonstop work. And the dad
1: yeah. even says several times you can take a break.
0: Yeah. uh huh. He's, he's just trying to tell him, like, don't slack off or whatever.
1: And he tells him, you know, you, you should be praying. That's what you should be doing mm-hmm. this whole time.
0: There are these really interesting moments because, okay, first of all, as he's digging this hole, Adam comes to him and apologizes. And says, I'm sorry I told on you. And Fenton says, you didn't tell him I was planning on running away, did you? And he said, no. So, like, Adam really does the stuff he does because he cares about his dad and he cares about his brother. You know, and he doesn't know how to, when those two things are in conflict, he doesn't know how to act. He doesn't know who to side with. He doesn't know how to obey his father and protect his brother at the same time. That's a conflict that Adam has. But Fenton is digging, digging, digging out of pure anger and refuses to pray the entire time and he gets blisters on his hands from not wearing gloves when he's shoveling. When he comes in, he's eating dinner and Adam and the dad are watching TV and eventually he sends Adam to bed and Adam's like, oh, but Fenton can stay up. And the dad's like, Go to bed. I'm telling you, go to bed. You know, it's there's just those small moments where it's like he's Bill Paxton is a good father.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Has he gone insane? Like what? It's but he still remains a good father throughout. And he's very understanding and he knows his son is mad at him and it doesn't make him happy. And, you know, he tries to give him gloves so he doesn't blister. He tries to, you know, wash his hands and all of that and take care of his son while he has to get this task done. Because that's the only way he can save his son from God's wrath. It's it's fascinating to watch. And I think, again, this is where Bill Paxton really shines as an actor.
1: Yeah, it's a very well done film.
0: Yeah. I like it a lot.
1: Fenton discovers quickly... He he built the dungeon for his father, basically. Yeah. And when he's done, his father tries to give him praise, and he's just like, no, I don't want your praise. I did what you told me to do. Yeah. I'm a son doing what his father yeah. tells him to do.
0: Because the dad says you should be proud. Yeah. I just did what you said.
1: So that night, they go to get their next victim, and he tells his son... That he will have to kill the guy, and that's when Fenton can't handle it, and he runs to go and get a cop.
0: Yeah, and he goes to the police station, and there's nobody there. He goes to the house in the back, which apparently the sheriff lives in, and the sheriff is conveniently just about to leave for a fishing trip. So everyone is going to expect him to be gone, (laughs) this great horror movie cliche. Yes. No one's going to ask questions when the sheriff disappears. You know that man is doomed.
1: Yes. So... Fenton gets there, tells the cop what's happening. Cop doesn't believe him. But Fenton is so gung-ho that the sheriff finally agrees to go and check it out.
0: But he checks it out in the shittiest way possible. He takes Fenton right back to his dad to ask the dad about it. And says, your boy says you're killing people or whatever. (laughs) And he's ready to just leave the kid and go. But ultimately, Fenton is so desperate. He finally, like, let's just, to ease the boy's mind, let's just go and check out this cellar.
1: Yeah, and the sheriff turns to the dad and says, do you think we have to, or is it does it have to be done? Or, I don't remember. But then Bill Paxton turns to his son and he says, well, Fenton, does it have to be done? Yeah. Looking at his son like, if you do this, this man will die. You're Mm -hmm. making that choice. But Fenton doesn't believe in it. Yeah. So he doesn't think he's making that choice.
0: And so he takes him down into the basement where the the body is gone. But so is Adam. Adam's been gone this entire time, too. He's like, maybe he's with Adam. And they're like, come on, dude. Like, I show up. Your dad's just a normal dude. I go into this cellar. There's nothing here. And Bill Paxton's argument is, well, I figured we should have a storm cellar. And that's what this is. And so Fenton gets the idea, oh, I know I can take you to where the bodies are buried in the Rose Garden. And the sheriff's just like, come on, kid. And he goes to leave. And the problem is, is that now He's the sheriff knows too mind. much. Yeah, he knows too much now. He could always come back and check later. And so from Fenton's perspective downstairs... We see the sheriff go upstairs, we hear the thud, and then we see the sheriff's body roll back downstairs.
1: And Bill Paxton comes down, and he says, may God welcome you and keep you, and then he kills him. And later that night, he will turn to Fenton and say, why are you afraid of me? Only demons should fear me. Are you afraid? Of what? You. Only demons should fear me. And you're not a demon, are you? The angel said you were. I can't believe that. I won't. You're my son. And I love you more than my own life.
0: You know what's funny about all this, Fenton? I'm afraid of you. It's so terrifying.
1: Yes, that's very terrifying, and the kid's just like, you kill tons of people, and he's like, I've never killed anybody in my life until tonight, and you made me do that. And so, what is his solution? What's the dad's solution? How are we going to make him believe in God?
0: We're going to leave him in the cellar.
1: Yeah, well, also because he's he's become a liability now.
0: Yeah, uh-huh.
1: Now I don't know who, who you're going to tell, so I got to lock you up.
0: Mm-hmm. And he left him in there for a couple, well, he doesn't know. He talks about the first day, and then I think he talks about the first week. Yes. and then But he ultimately doesn't know how long he's been down there. And he gets a glass of water a day.
1: A gla- yeah, a glass of water a day, and he's in there for at least a week. The f- and at the end of the first week, Bill Paxton opens up the door and says, Well, has God spoken to you? And what does the kid say?
0: He says there is no God. And so, door slams right back down on him, and then he nails it back in place.
1: Now, the next part is strange. Again, if you know what's happening, it's weird, because I have... You have no idea what Fenton goes through here. Yes. According to Matthew McConaughey, Fenton sees God, but that's not true. So, I don't know what Fenton actually goes through here. Well, he
0: goes kind of hysterical, and... Whether or not he actually sees anything, he is now, from this point forward, going to start saying that, yes, he believes and that he is going to help them. Whether that's true or not.
1: And so what ends up happening is Adam goes to give him his glass of water and Fenton doesn't respond. Uh Uh-huh. So that's when the dad goes down and grabs him and takes him out and he feeds him. And he tells them, I saw God. And Adam's like, what the f- what the hell? Why does Fenton get to see God and I only get to see demons? Yeah, uh-huh. And Bill Paxton's like, look at the price your brother had to pay to see God. Yeah. And it's interesting because like in the stand, the price that she had to pay was death. So that's uh-huh. interesting. These things that people think like, if God does exist, then we have to basically kill ourselves to be worthy of him. Yeah. But so I would like to point out that Fenton is a is a scrawny kid from the get go. So I'm sure they were just kind of leaning on that here. Yeah. But he does not look he like he's been without good. food for a month.
0: Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. He does
1: not look like he's got food. I just mean he looks
0: disheveled. Like his eyes kind of look a little sunken and dark. He would look a lot worse. Yes. You're we right. know.
1: Because we've seen what that looks like when people just don't feed their children. Yes. So we know that.
0: Uh, but um, you can only do so much to a little kid. Right. We should probably point out that that guy that says, mind your business, you fucking bitch. That's now. That hadn't happened yet. Total dill hole.
1: <laughs> yes. Obviously, he beats women. Like, there's no question uh-huh. about that. Who's at the door? Shut the fuck up.
0: He, his line is, "Mind your business, you fucking bitch." <laughs> Goddamn women. And and then what they're what the act is is that they need his help. They have a flat tire, but they don't have a tire iron. And then he sees that they're that they're wearing gloves, and he's like, "So what's with the gloves?" And Paxton's like, "Well, to change the tire." And he's like, "Okay, I guess that makes sense. Let me go get the tire iron." And they follow him into the garage to get the tire iron.
1: And that is where. Bill Paxton will knock him out with the lead pipe. Yeah. And they take him back. There's a
0: fight, too, where the dude struggles against this. Like, he hits Bill Paxton in the gut, but ultimately they, they're they able to knock him out. But yes, now they go off, and now Fenton's gonna help. And so Fenton does actually help in the scuffle. When the dude hits the dad, Fenton hits the dude.
1: Yes. It's necessary to get... This man and his father down into the dungeon. Yes. That is absolutely necessary for Fenton's plan.
0: So, Dad touches the dude, sees the demon stuff, and then he hands the axe to Fenton and gives it to him. Now, if you really believe, you need to do this. Because the problem is, is that God told Dad that Fenton's a demon. That prophecy kind of comes true, Because now that Fenton has the axe, he goes to swing it and chop off the dude's head, but instead buries it in his father's chest. Yeah,
1: Shining kills his dad.
0: Yes. (laughs) Just swings it around right in the chest. Yes. And Adam's freaking out. The dad's dying. And Fenton finally did what he didn't think he was capable of, which is putting a stop to the murders. Or so he thinks. And he goes to help the guy and tell him, you got to get out of here. you got to run. And... The guy yells at Fenton. And you're like, why is he yelling? Turns out he's not yelling at Fenton. Fenton turns around. Here comes Adam with the axe and kills the dude. Now Adam has killed somebody. Yes. So we're starting to see sort of the birth of the God's Hand killer. Yes. Here.
1: When he talks about Adam killing the guy, we come back to... Present day. And Matthew McConaughey says, you know, after that, we just kind of bounced around in the foster system mm-hmm. for a while.
0: We got separated, I think, at one point.
1: But I don't feel much like talking anymore, is what he says. And then they get to the Rose Garden and they walk in. I forget why, but he ends up telling the cop that he said, if you ever end- if you ever destroy me...
0: Okay, so, yes, Adam... Fenton says that to Adam as kids when they're burying their father and this other guy, because they told people that the dad just never came home, but they ended up burying him in the Rose Garden. Fenton tells Adam, if you ever destroy me, because Adam's a true believer and Fenton might be a demon, I want you to bury me here in the Rose Garden. And this is when the audience and Powers Booth get really confused. He's like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. You told me that your brother told you to bury him in the Rose Garden. But now you're telling me Fenton said that? And Matthew McConaughey says, well, it makes sense if the man that's standing in front of you isn't Fenton Meeks. And this is where I get a little eye-rolly. I'm like, mm, they're trying really hard to have a Kaiser Sose reveal here. But the movie makes up for it. And I promise you, just you just, you just have to wait. Turns out that Matthew McConaughey is actually Adam and that the brother who has gone crazy and killed himself, supposedly, according to Matthew McConaughey's story that he told previously, was Fenton. But that Fenton is, in fact, Matthew McConaughey's brother is, in fact, the God's Hand Killer. He's gone crazy He's gone nuts, he's tattooed his body all over the place, and he just did not handle killing his father very well. (laughs) But now he's gone to be a killer. I don't know if it's maybe to, in his own mind, to fight against the idea that he's a demon. Maybe he thinks he's killing demons because he says they've been touched by God's hand or whatever. And that's where the term God's hand killer came from. But ultimately, he's just a crazy serial killer.
1: Yeah, and it's fun because the the cop looks around and he's like, there's too many bodies buried here. It can't be the hand killer. And he goes, well, my brother kept his bodies in the basement (laughs) as trophies. These are my bodies.
0: Yes, these these are the demons. And Powers Booth pulls the gun on him and is like, don't you come any closer or whatever. I forget how he gets closer to him. I don't know. And he touches him. And he sees Powers Booth strangling his mother to death. We don't know why.
1: No stabbing her.
0: I thought he like she's folding laundry. Doesn't he grab yeah, I her in it's the...
1: This, the the blood splatters oh, okay, on the sheets? Okay,
0: yeah. And he asks McConaughey how he knew because McConaughey says you killed your mother. And Powers Booth is like broken down and devastated at this point after having been touched, forced to relive killing his mom. And McConaughey says. Because your name ended up on my list. I've come here specifically for you. And Powers Booth is like, you can't kill me. You're at the FBI. There are cameras. Other people saw you. How do you think you're going to get away with this? And he says that God's going to protect him. And then he kills Powers Booth.
1: And we then get to see how God does protect him. The cameras all have... What's Static,
0: like tracking issues basically. Yes. Where whenever he's walking, you can't see his face.
1: Yes. And then when they interview the other cops, they're like, I don't know why. It's just it's all a blur. I, I can't, can't remember see what he him. looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they end up going to the town where they're from. Yeah. Thurman.
0: And they go to the sheriff's office and we see that blonde woman that we talked to on the phone before, and she's pregnant.
1: And out walks the sheriff to talk to the cops.
0: And it's Matthew McConaughey.
1: And the cop has seen Matthew McConaughey.
0: The FBI agent who saw him at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. And, and does not memory. recognize him. Does not recognize him. And they, you know, they're talking. They know that, that Powers Booth is dead because they find they find his, his badge with blood all over it. They know he went with Fenton Meeks. And Fenton Meeks is the God's Hand Killer. Everyone knows all this stuff now. But they don't know where Powers Booth's body is. They don't know where Fenton is. And who we now know as Adam, Matthew McConaughey, promises to help in whatever way he can to catch his brother, you know? And then he shakes hands with this agent, and then the agent's about to turn away, but he stops him. He just looks him in the eye, and he says, You're a good man, Agent Hall." And the agent's like, okay, thanks. (laughs) And then he walks away.
1: The lady walks out, the pregnant woman, she puts her arms around him, and... She asks him, is everything okay? And he goes, yep, another demon's destroyed or something. Uh-huh. And she it's goes, like, praise, praise God. God.
0: Yep." Uh-huh. <laughs> everything okay, Adam? Everything's just fine, like God's will has been served. Praise God. And that's the end of the Could movie. Could
1: have done without that ending.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the point is, is that, you know, she's his wife and... She
1: totally knows. Yeah,
0: uh-huh. She's in on it. I think that works. So the movie does heavily, heavily imply that it's real heavily, heavily. And I think ultimately that that is for the best. I think coming to the conclusion that this mission is real and that God is protecting them, not only makes it kind of cool, it makes it a little twisted and not just in a throwaway way. Like we got earlier when it's like, ah, but I lied to you. I'm not Fenton. I'm really Adam. What a twist. No, that's not where the twist ends. The twist continues on, and that Fenton really was the God's Hand killer, and it's not Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey isn't the God's Hand killer. His brother is, and then his brother's name showed up on his list, and he had to kill him, because if he killed him before that, it would have been murder. And he is this righteous warrior of God who does know the difference between evil people and good people and can see real demons and then disposes of them that way. It saves the story from just being, ooh, isn't it spooky that the God's Hand killer killed the FBI agent that was after him this way? No, that's not what it's saying. I like it a lot better if you come to the conclusion that it is real. I do think the movie heavily implies it, but I don't think that it's... Like, yes, it definitely is. But I do think that is the better interpretation.
1: How else are you going to explain the tracking problem?
0: That's that's why I'm saying it heavily implies it. But we never actually get confirmation.
1: I guess. I uh, audience, I feel that there's enough confirmation here. Totally. But it also does bring up a couple of questions. Considering this entire story has been told from the perspective of Adam. Yes. It makes it harder to understand certain things about Fenton's character. Because it makes it, well, do I believe Adam?
0: Yeah. There's a big jump between Fenton killing his dad and burying the body in the Rose Garden with his brother and him being God's hand. There's a big jump there.
1: I think that you could just interpret it as... Maybe he knew what his brother was thinking, maybe he didn't, does it really matter? Maybe he
0: just assumed it's part of the story he's telling in order to get the FBI agent to believe him.
1: But there are certain things that I would have liked to have known. I would have liked to have known what Fenton was actually thinking when he ran to the cops. Like, he says in the film, I expected God to stop me. But that's all from Adam's perspective. Or I Adam's
0: like, assumption of what Fenton was thinking.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we don't actually know what uh-huh. happened between Fenton and that cop. That entire story was told from Adam's perspective. Yeah,
0: but it's not like it's substantive.
1: I guess. And then there are just certain things that... I would have liked to have known what the the real character would have thought. And maybe it would have been what the character really uh-huh. thought. It's
0: but just... it's a sacrifice we get for the story that's told. Yes. You can't do both and have it make sense.
1: Yes. But I really liked it. I think it's very good. I would have liked to have dived into Fenton's character once he... So does Fenton never believe? It's a question.
0: Or he snaps at some point and he starts to believe. Yeah. Mm because he like we say he's the god's hand killer and the reason he's called that is because in his first message with the first body he says that they've been touched by god's hand and that this will be the only body that you find oh. so he he it's like he's trying to be he can't handle it the fact that he's a demon he has to be an agent of god and so he he goes crazy thinking that he is an agent of god
1: we didn't tell the audience what we ended up seeing from those two people that that the dad killed. They show us at the end what Adam saw.
0: Yeah, Adam saw, first of all, that that man was... A baby killer, right?
1: It's impl- It seems the implication is that he was molesting and killing little girls. Uh-huh. That's the implication. All we see is a little girl that he comes up and talks to and is creepy to, and then the next shot, she's obviously dead.
0: Yeah, and then the woman was something else, too, right? The first woman?
1: The implication there is that she just straight up shot somebody. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there's, like, a dead person laying next to her, and there's, like, a shot, a hole in its neck, which is odd. she's, like, a
0: Black Widow killer or something, maybe? Maybe.
1: Which is odd, because earlier, when we first saw her, she was, like, dressed up as, like, a A nurse. nurse. Yeah. So uh I wondered if it was going to be that, like, she killed her patients.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But then we see that, no, it looks like she just killed her boyfriend. Uh Uh-huh. But then that makes me question, why did she kill her
0: boyfriend? Yeah. Maybe he was an abusive asshole. For a reason? Yeah. uh
1: (laughs) Don't tell me that. Tell me she's a nurse who just killed her patients. That's an easier way to make me not like her. It
0: is, but it's also more definitive, you know? And having people question that up until the very last scene in the movie is kind of part of the movie's appeal. So even when you find out what they see, can you – even with what you see, can you really say that they're a demon?
1: Yeah, that's another question too. Is it that they're demons or is it that they're just bad people?
0: Right. And demon is the word we use to describe them. Demon is a word that I use to describe. If you listen to our last episode, you know I hate that fucking song. It's a good song. (laughs) I do have some lightning round stuff. (laughs) Throughout the movie, Bill Paxton drinks Ham's beer can. That is the same beer can. It's an actual beer can from that era. What they actually looked like in 1979, but they only had one of them. So it's the same can he's drinking from the entire movie. And when you hear it opened, it's opened off screen. It's just a sound effect.
1: They couldn't just make new ones.
0: (laughs) What kind of budget do you have? When they dig that hole, when you see Bill Paxton in the hole, he's taking the shovel and he's shoveling downwards like that. He's standing on his knees because as he describes it in the commentary, we couldn't really dig that deep unless it's reinforced. So actually in this shot, I'm on my knees and kind of making it look like I'm standing up to make the hole look deeper. <laughs> and then they have the mound of dirt across the top to make it look like it's over his head when really it's not. That that, that It's only like four feet deep or something like that. That's funny. And finally, what do you think frailty means?
1: Like, why is it called that? Yeah. I always thought it had something to do with how frail our belief is and...
0: Interesting. Something about that. Interesting. So the writer... Brent Hanley, in in his commentary, there's several commentary tracks. I ended up buying it on iTunes. There are like three different commentary tracks. There's the Bill Paxton, there's Brent Hanley, and there's one of the producers. He has one, too. When the title is shown, he says, Frailty to me was always about the frailty of perception, the frailty of morality, the frailty of right and wrong, which I think is in line with what you're saying. And then a little bit further in, he says... I like the idea of an abstract title. (laughs) He just wanted to give it a one-word title that is never said in the movie. That isn't like a plot point, you know? So, but yes, that is what frailty is supposed to mean. So, Kelsey. Yes. What do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes?
1: I would guess an 80.
0: 74. Creepy and disturbing. Frailty is well-crafted, low-key horror. Metacritic of 64. Cinema score of B-. minus which is a little closer to average than I thought it would be. I was reading things about, obviously, James Cameron liked it. He got to see a sneak peek of it. Stephen King liked it. Sam Raimi liked it. There are a lot of these sort of horror influences that really, that that like this movie. Roger Ebert said in his four-star review of this movie, which he just gives four stars. That's the most he can give. Frailty is an extraordinary work, concealing in its depths, not only unexpected story turns, but also implications. Hidden at first, that make it even deeper and more sad. The film neither shies away from its horrifying events nor dwells on them. There's a series of axe murders, but they occur off-screen. This is not a movie about blood, but about obsession. Perhaps only a first-time director, an actor who does not depend on directing for his next job, would have had the nerve to make this movie. It is uncompromised. It follows its logic right down into hell. We love movies that play and toy with the supernatural, but are we prepared for one that is an unblinking look at where the logic of the true believer can lead? On the basis of this film, Paxton is a gifted director. He and his collaborators, writer Brent Hanley and cinematographer Bill Butler, and editor Arnold Glassman, have made a complex film that grips us with the intensity of a simple one. We're with it every step of the way, and discover we hardly suspect where it's going. So, Roger Ebert loved this movie. <laughs> Very good. What would you give it? Do you think 74 is overrated or underrated?
1: Underrated. What would you give it? I was going to give it an 82.
0: I was going to give it an 83. So, it's it's remarkable that you got as close as you did to what I was going to. Um, I, because I think, I think that's halfway between 80 and, and 85. And 82 and a half, we don't do half points. I went 83. You went 82. <laughs> it was funny.
1: I think this movie... <laughs> There's definitely something missing. It's not perfect. No. There's, I don't know. It just doesn't do enough to get up into that A category. But it's so good.
0: It's really good. It's overlooked. It's one of those creepy supernatural sort of detective thrillers that were all over the place at this time. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the good ones.
1: Yes. The kids are so good in it. Well, especially Fenton. And it's just an interesting story. I I really enjoy following these characters and seeing what happened.
0: Yeah. And it asks a lot of questions that even with, even if you come away from this movie thinking, well, it is all real. What they're seeing is what they're seeing. It doesn't stop it from being a commentary on the things that Roger Ebert said, you know? doesn't stop it from being commentary on, okay, well, if you take the knowledge of a true believer, if you take that to its logical endpoint, where does that go? And, you know, whether it's true or not, Bill Paxton's character believes it's true. (laughs) And that's what's interesting about it, is that belief. And how can we trust that belief? And what do we do if we think that regardless of whether or not it's real, that it's wrong? How do we respond to that? What does that do to our psyche? Well, Would would we grow up to be the God's hand killer? Mm -hmm. You know? like So it's really interesting that even with a semblance of certainty, there's still a lot of questions lingering that the movie asks you. I think that's pretty good. I think that's a sign of a good movie. That is 2001's Frailty, thus ending our Father's Day week. (laughs) What great Father's Day movie. (laughs) What are we watching next week, Kelsey?
1: Well, it's summertime. Summer, summer, summer time. So.
0: Summertime, and the living's easy.
1: We thought we would continue with our sequels and our summertime movies. And we're going to watch I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah. And we're going to pair that with a recommendation from Donnie. Thank you, Donnie. Called Revenge.
0: Do you know anything about revenge? Yes. Can you give us a little sneak peek? Do
1: I have to tell you more than the title? It's about a girl getting revenge on some men. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> got it. Got it. So okay. we're
1: probably going to see one half of where the woman is
0: yes, not being, treated well. Yeah. And last then, house on the left style, <sighs> right? Yeah.
1: And then the second half.
0: Where you get revenge. Or I Spit on Your Grave style or all those movies. They Call
1: Her One Eye, yeah, all that. uh Same thing. But, and you might be wondering, well, why would you pair that with I Still Know What You Did Last Summer? Well, because, people, there's not a lot of summer movies.
0: (laughs) There are a lot of summer movies. There aren't a lot of summer horror movies that are about it being summer.
1: And this is about a dude getting revenge. This is about chick getting revenge, right?
0: I mean, theoretically, we could do a... Another Friday the 13th, because those happen at summer camps.
1: We're doing Friday the 13th on the next Friday the 13th, which is in November. Oh, darn. (laughs) We were supposed to do the earlier Friday the 13th, but we couldn't because of scheduling problems. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's good. Okay. Well, next week, then, I still know what you did last summer and revenge. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com, and get a list of every movie we've ever covered. If you haven't listened to all of our episodes and you just want to dive into what you'd be interested in, go to our website and check out the list of movies. That's a great way to explore our back catalog. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review a five-star written review is the absolute best thing you can do for us there it helps out a whole lot and sharing us with your friends is another big help and you know what the best thing you could do is listen in the gd first place thank you all so much we love each and every one of you until next week i've been chris
1: i've been kelsey and
0: this has been pod cemetery but before we go kelsey any last words
1: Sometimes truth defies reason.
0: I don't wanna be buried in a bit,
1: cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. I don't
0: wanna be buried in a bed, cemetery. I don't wanna live my life. I'm the to the sacred place. This ain't a dream I can't escape. Smoldering and fangs to are picking up bones. Spirit's mourning among the two Can you say something?
1: I'm saying something.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Thank Anything you. but that.
0: Anything but that.
1: This is weird, this is weird, fucking
0: weird. weird.
1: So mad that I I don't don't know what what to do. do.
0: Fighting with microphones, freezing down to my bones, and to top it all off, I'm with you. There's a lot of stuff that's really good about Rent. (laughs) A lot of stuff that's not so good. I like Rent. Then there was the, the, oh god, what's it called? fuck what's it called what what the fuck was it called seduction yeah if if only if
1: to dancin ain't no fool he's got a lock on the door
0: (laughs) to dancin ain't no fool (laughs) no
1: do you hear me richard i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get you richard it's showtime i can hold my breath for a long time
0: what's that look on your face you're
1: just cute you're cute I have a problem with this scene, but I don't know if you want to keep it in here because it it has to do with the ending.
0: Um, okay. Well, don't tell me yet. Well, no, don't don't say it on the recording yet. Just tell me.
1: The end of the world is coming, but twenty years later, the world is not ending.
0: That doesn't give away anything about the ending because we we already we've already seen the present.
1: But. If you don't understand that he really is doing this, you might be like, well, yeah, the world didn't end because the dad's crazy.
0: Or it didn't end because they're doing God's work. You can just drop that the dad says that the world, the end of the world is coming. But we know since this is a flashback that 20 years on.
1: Right, which might make you lead to believe that the dad's crazy. But he's not.
0: We don't know that.
1: Oh, you still end the movie not thinking that he really
0: is killing demons? Really? Who's telling us this? We'll talk about this when we get to the end of the movie. Who? Who's t- who, But
1: he admits he killed his mother. We yes. know he did that. Yeah. That's not enough proof for you? Oh, my God. I oh, know.
0: I think it suggests it, but I don't think it's concrete. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: But he also says that Judgment Day is here and that soon we're going to see Mommy, which would indicate that they're going to die.
0: Yeah. Which is. Well, because again, the good Christians are going to be The world be is going to end. Yes. Listen, I think that the movie heavily suggests it. Heavily, 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 and yeah. I like that it does.
1: Right, so what I'm saying is is it doesn't make sense that the world didn't end.
0: Yeah, but on God's timeline, what's 20 years? He I didn't guess. say it was going to end tomorrow.
1: That's the point.
0: God will protect us from being seen.
1: And what's interesting is that as he's running, now this is another thing that we can't really talk about, so you might want well to cut this out. Okay, let me hear it. Matthew McConaughey remember is the narrator he is describing has Fenton runs mm-hmm. I expected God to stop me mm-hmm. but he didn't so that's gotta be from Adam's perspective so why doesn't Adam question why God didn't stop Fenton
0: well the dad talks about free will doesn't he
1: I guess, but is it? There's a
0: whole speech about free will. But is
1: it free will if you come down and you say
0: these are demons and you gotta kill them? Well, because you select specific individuals, but in general, you're hands off.
1: But is that free will? Yeah, I didn't get to choose.
0: He could say no. He chooses not to because of his faith. He could.
1: But again, is God lending a hand in all of this?
0: Or is he just a shitty sheriff?
1: Didn't he tell Bill Paxton, if you tell somebody, someone will die? Uh He did. Is that free will then?
0: Yeah. He had the option to not tell or tell. He always has free will. Just because God can see the future doesn't mean that he's dictating the way things go. There was a different person that they went after when the sh- when the sheriff came by.
1: We don't Oh, okay. Do you remember who the other person is? I don't is? remember who it
0: is cuz I have my notes are in this order. The sheriff was conveniently leaving for a fishing trip. My next note is mind your business you fucking bitch, mm-hmm. goddamn women. So, that's the order that it happens.
1: Okay, I don't I don't remember at all who the other person is. No. Okay.
0: Some random dude that I don't think we learned much about. You're a good man, agent, whatever. And then that's the end of the movie. No. Oh, go ahead.
1: The lady walks out.
0: Yes. Okay, you just say it like I didn't say anything.
1: To so dancing ain't no fool.